This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.36 a.m. This is The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. You're listening to What's the Focus? Or, or WTF, we like to call it WTF, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. Let's just jump right into it, right? Let's start with international. Um, and I think the real big story of the week was um, what happened at Disney. They traded one Bob for another when they fired CEO Bob Chapek and brought back his predecessor, Bob Iger, to turn around the entertainment empire. Oh, I see, not Bob the Builder. <laughs> sure. I know the tune to that all show, the by iterations. the way. Why do you know that tune? I I love it. I think it's such a cute show. <laughs> Maybe I always want to be a contractor or drive a tractor. You make a lot of money, you know, as a contractor. I know, I know. Maybe Margins that's the appeal. Good. In any case, they are looking for a bob to fix what's happening at Disney. <laughs> we did see Disney's share price plunge 40% uh, on a year-to-date basis prior to Bob Iger's return. And investors obviously lost confidence that Chapek could lead them out of this slump. Um, we do know that Iger is credited with shaping Disney as a modern media company. It was his bright idea to acquire well-known entertainment brands like Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. Um, but one thing that he hasn't been so great at is really finding somebody who could replace him. That's always the big issue with any CEO, the succession planning. And I always hear this talk that, you know, the moment, the first day you become a CEO, the first thing you should do is put in place your succession plan. Not kill your enemies? No, of course not. Or boil them in oil? Sorry, I missed the memo. You missed, clearly not being a CEO before. Imagine if I was. (laughs) (laughs) The the evil laughters emanate from the studios of Tamantun. (laughs) But I think this is very interesting because we talked this whole experience of Starbucks, of former prime ministers, you know, leaving the position and then wanting to come back again and take on the same leadership role. It's an indictment on them, in my view, that they are unable to build that successful succession plan. And unable to let go, I guess. I mean, if we look at Disney, apparently in the 15 years that he was there, there were so many, oh, I'll retire now. Oh, not yet. Oh, I think about Mm. four times um, he said he'd retire and then he backtracked. Um, And even with Bob Chapek at the the helm, he never really let go. He was always hoping um, or, or counting on himself to be an advisor to Disney. There was there was news that uh, Disney gave him a $10 million consultancy deal to advise Chapek, yeah. which didn't really play out well. Don't feel sorry for him because when he was supposedly out of the out of the job, he was actually paid, like you say, Shaz, $2 million a year in consulting fees. And this according to Bloomberg. He was also paid, uh, Disney also paid for his security costs. Why? Oh. I don't know. Mm. Did somebody want to kill him because it wasn't the happiest place in the world? But the security costs as much as 745,000 US dollars a year. So nice benefits when you when you think you should have retired. Yeah, and I think my issue with respect to strategy for Disney is that Bob Chapek, I think, was trying to follow through Bob Iger's strategy of expanding to streaming. Of course, now with reopening, streaming is under a bit of pressure. So when you hear now Rob Iger, you know, kind of re-emphasizing the need to focus on creativity, the need to go back to its core roots of creativity, I, I don't know, I, I get a sense that you know, it's just a function of just being unable to get the strategy right at the start. 
And um, he is coming back to an environment that's so much different. As you said, um, mm. um, Phil, streaming now plays a much bigger role than when he was um, in the office back mm. then. Um, we did speak to Gita Ranganathan of Bloomberg Intelligence this week on our show. You can look up the podcast, Can Iger Bring Back the Magic at Disney? For more insights or more thoughts on what he could do to turn Disney around. And who's going to be new boss when Iger's contract expires in two years' time? Well, what I've heard and is... Would anybody want that job considering that your ex-boss might come back as your replacement. Well, that's, that's what happened at Starbucks and what happened at Apple. It honestly. also happened here, didn't it, in Malaysia? It happened here on a, on a larger scale here. Yes, uh, and that didn't end well too, right? Not so well. Not mm. quite, not quite. But what I heard is they're creating a committee of these top leaders at Disney to actually chart out the future. So I suspect, I think Bob Iger also knows that his time also has to be relatively limited for the sake and success of the long longevity of the company. Well, lots to look out for on that front. Um, let's take a look at other developments. I think there's been a lot of... Uh, retrospective reflections also on COP27 and what it accomplished. I think the most talked about achievements um, of that summit was the agreement finally um, to establish and operationalize a new loss and damage fund. Uh, But at the same time, it does really feel like, sure, you've got that big headline, but again, the devil's in the details, right? And it's all those little details that still need to be ironed out. And that's that's always the problem. And the biggest detail is we do not know the size of the fund. I think it was agreed to set up a fund. We don't know what the quantum is. Although Do we know be, who's contributing? Their proportion? We don't even know the quantum. I, I doubt we don't even know the allocation of what it is. And that's why I think for many people, although the loss and damage fund was advocated by developing nations, and it was very symbolic that this COP27 was done in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, um, and there was a lot of opposition from the United States for this fund, it was good that they did agree to set up the fund, but the details, as you say, not yet ironed out. But I think what also happened with with this you know, success here was the dissatisfaction that was that there wasn't any effort to talk about reduction of fossil fuels. Mm. So I think that was what the developed countries were pushing for, and many of the petrol states just refused to back down. Because under COP26, wasn't there a commitment to cut... Uh well, global warming by 1.5 degrees to Celsius. To 1.5 degrees. And, and that was really hard and challenging. And to mm. the point at COP26, they only agreed that, that commitments made will only go up to 2, 2 degrees. They are not even 1.5. I think there was also unhappiness over the final text of the agreement because some of it weakens mm. these fossil fuel provisions by calling for countries to reduce emissions through an in- increase in lower emission and renewable energy, which has led to many climate activists to be concerned that the low emission energy would also include natural gas, which for some is that bridge, right, between fossil fuels and renewable energy. It is exactly that bridge that actually Malaysia is contemplating for. If you look at our energy supply, I mean, 80-90% is fossil fuel. Mm. And of that, it is a mix of coal and gas. And there's been a lot of talk, if you actually listen to some of the charamas in the government, that shifting from coal to gas itself will already actually help us get towards net zero proportionately, right? Of course, it's very debatable and and, and a lot of controversy there. But you're right, gas is a very important transition. To what extent does that play and what's the commitment there? Yeah, because I recently heard this podcast about Germany, right? You know that they're facing this energy crisis mm. and they were supposed to go like full hog with renewable energy. But because there's no gas, well, no energy coming out of uh, oil coming out of uh, Russia and there are, a lot of their nuclear power plants have actually put been put out to pasture. Yep. They are actually now considering natural gas as that 
in between yes. because they can't get to renewable energy fast enough. So, but in the meantime, they also cannot afford their manufacturing base to suffer in terms of the energy requirements. That's right. And that's why Germany has built so many LNG terminals across Germany. And and that is the exact reason why Germany doesn't have that energy crisis that many were anticipating they would have this coming winter. It seems to be managed relatively well. But you are shaking your head, No, Charles. no, I'm just wondering. <laughs> I was thinking about the fact that our government prior to GE14 mm. did introduce a national policy for renewable energy. I'm wondering what's going to be the state of that and how that will be taken forward. Lots of things to look for in this next government. Uh, who's going to be our energy, our minister? Things that we can ponder Sorry, on. My, the light bulb went on my yes, head. Yes, <laughs> think of that. Hold that thought. We will discuss this more after the break. But before we go into the break, let's talk about the World Cup because that's also the other yeah. big story on the international front. Uh, the World Cup finally kicked off. We've seen the first round of matches Um all being played with uh, Saudi Arabia and also Japan being the two surprise winners of their first match- matches, respectively. And they like like us, Saudi Arabia like to declare public holidays because <laughs> after they didn't win the World Cup, they, they just won <laughs> their first match. Yeah, and they got a public holiday. But it was with Argentina, okay, one of the big powerhouses. So the question is, if they win every subsequent match, is there going to be? Public holiday every time? A year-long sabbatical. That's what I expect to happen. But it's very interesting in my view, right? These upsets are actually good for Qatar, the host nation, because it creates that much-needed distraction from all the flack it's getting over hosting the World Cup. I I mean, in the past, we've always talked about it. It's such a great privilege to host these great sporting events. But you're hearing the luster, you know, kind of lose its sheen a bit. Many people are hesitant to even host the Olympics, all these big football games. And it's because of all these controversies that come with it. And there's also because not necessarily you're going to have the economic benefits that you think about, right? Look at Athens. And you know, they say there's a bit of a curse. So let's say Olympic Games, after you host it, then the country normally experiences a bit of a recession. Beijing was one classic example. Brazil was another one. You overbuild, thinking people will come. And after your sport event, nobody's coming. Indeed. Uh, don't forget that uh, Qatar did spend 300 billion US dollars yep. to prepare for the games in terms of int- infrastructure, in terms of just having the accommodations ready for all the tourists that are coming in. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens post uh, this World Cup and how they make use of all their amenities. It's a very interesting point because Qatar's strategy for a very, very long time was to reduce its dependence on gas, on its gas market. It decided to pivot into the sports industry. That's why it holds the Asian Games. That's why he wants to host the Olympics Games. But I think it comes with all these challenges, right? That's right. It comes with it. With the sports washing um, allegations as well. Lots of things to consider. But let us not digress. It is still a beautiful game to watch. It is still a beautiful game indeed. 9.47 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. We're going to come back with a look at the political recaps of the week. Keep it here on BFM 89.9. 9.49 in the morning. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. In this part of the show, let's take a look at all that's been happening on our local front. And Was anything else happening? I thought there was only one thing happening. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. It was one thing happening. And really, um, it's uh, the culmination of Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim's road to Putrajaya. It's been a decades long in the making. He was was finally appointed as the Prime Minister, as PM10 uh, yesterday. 
I think I I really wonder if he's the last of the boomer politicians who will be prime minister. He is seventy five years old. He is seventy five years old. I think everybody said their shot already at becoming prime minister. Is this the last call? And then later we have the next generation of leaders coming up. And do we then just bypass the Gen X and go straight to another generation? That's that's my that's my thought process when I listen and and reflect about this very historic appointment of Anwar Ibrahim. You know, you saw the very interesting uh, Twitter by Najib uh, Razak. Mm. Although ironically he's in prison, I don't know how he could tweet that. But in any case, that's not the point. Um, that all were and his his note was Hadir, in mm. which all the people that were in the That's right. Um, that, Supreme Council have all become Prime Minister in some form now. It was such an iconic photo. Very iconic and photo. trotted out at all the pivotal political times um, of our country. Maybe it's time for a new photo, right? And yes. who's going to be part of the next photo of leaders holding their hands up um, to, you know, as Prime Minister's potential? I um, For me, what was interesting was the whole process that we had to go through. So we had three years of the pandemic where we all lived under some shadow of fear and there was a lot of anxiety. It wasn't helped by the fact that we had Shankar, uh, Lanka Sheraton, right? And then followed by how many prime ministers we had? Three? Two? Mm. Right? Yes. So it, it, a revolving door a revolving of prime revolving ministers. Door, revolving door of cabinet ministers. So, you know, is this a first for Malaysia? Have we learned any lessons? It would be really nice to stay to the same government until the next elections, mm. right? I think that would be such a great thing to happen. But Jahabas warned yeah. us. I mean, I just did the breakfast group with Jahabas Sadiq, right? Who is the editor of the Malaysian Insight and James Chai, who's a visiting fellow at the ISIS Yusuf, Yusuf Isha Institute. And he warns us that GE16 will also be challenging mm. because the days of where one single party can command a majority is over. Are Malaysians ready to live with coalition politics and the messiness of it? I, th- I think that's so interesting because just about 10 years ago, we were all worried that we all would take our governments for granted because it was always going to be BN, that was always going to be the de facto government. And the question then was, to what extent was the size of the opposition? That was really the narrative that many people were thinking about now. But And that's why I think with Undi 18 and with the expander of the electorate and with our, actually our voter participation relatively higher, close to 74 75%, I think people now cannot take for granted the power of their vote. And that's been reflected in this election. And, you know, Shaz, you said something very interesting just now, which is your hope that you would have a stable government, you know, for four or five years. It's very different from what we had a decade ago, <laughs> which, which was, was stable the government. same government for 30 years. And that was a big problem for many people at that time. Okay, so what needs to improve then if coalition politics is here to stay and that it will remain a messy affair is if you ask me we need to really then really focus on the institutional parliamentary reforms that we have been you know asking for we cannot forget this this has to continue every government that comes into power must be pressured to do so what's really important is the government service is robust is independent because things functioned even though we were in this political wilderness for five days. To be honest, it did. But mm. we need to give more power to government servants so that we have this sense of, I, I think in some way, less anxiety over the future. It's the tricky thing about reforms, right? We need reforms. But at the same time, the timing, the messaging, the communication has to be right in order for it to be accepted broadly. We saw how in the first Pakatan Harapan administration, a lot of reforms that they tried to push through were just completely rejected by the public. I'm thinking of ISERD, really. So mm. we 
we want to do these big um, reforms which are necessary, but doing it in a manner that's palatable to the people as well. And one could argue that the previous government, that fractured coalition of BNPN, did actually deliver quite a bit on the legislative side. Mm. Yeah. They did deliver to quite a bit. To, 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 uh, to them, they were very consequential. Yeah, to be fair to Datu Sri Ismail Sabri, he did push through some reforms, yes. which we are grateful for. And... You know, one of which the biggest one, if you ask me, is this anti-hopping bill. Think it about really it. really changed the dynamics of how this yeah. Pakatan Harapan government came into being. Because if it wasn't for the anti-hopping bill, there'd be lots of MPs. We'd have those frogs jumping from... Back and forth, yeah. back and forth, right? And rather than individuals being, you know, like deals being negotiated, it was at least party to party. And the politics of betrayal would have continued because mm. when somebody mm. flips over to another party, oh, you betrayed your party and then that feeling would, would you know, would still linger. But the fact is, the parties had to move on block and you have to, like, defend that that decision mm. and justify it and, and you know, what, what with whatever consequences that come. But what was an interesting observation from GE15 was many of those frogs, many of those traitors didn't win their seats when they came for re-election the next time round. Yes, Some did, but very a few, lot though. didn't. A lot. So Malaysians also don't seem to like uh, frogs very much. And it was very I do like the legs though in, in <laughs> porridge, but that's I do. another thing for I another day. Love it. I, love it. I love Kentucky Fried Frog, but anyway, that's not the point I here. enjoy it vicariously through the both of you. Thank you. What I think is very interesting, as you say, right, a lot of these frogs uh, didn't survive the election and I guess my only sad point is that also the next generation of leaders also didn't make it. We saw the likes of Nurul Iza didn't win the seat. Kairi Jamaluddin also didn't win the seat. So I find that also a bit disheartening that although you kind of validate that the older folks are still around. Mm. Um, we also kind of lost, I think, some really important talent on both sides of the political hour. But it's also part of the long political journey, yeah? I mean, looking yeah, at Anwar Ibrahim's true. journey as well, you, he lost for so many times and now and he's went back. went to jail. And I, I mean, added twice. to that, right? And yeah. I feel like mm. a, a defeat now doesn't mean a defeat in the future. And yeah, I really true. do hope that these young uh, leaders that you mentioned, that, you know, they'll stick around for the next general elections. We're going to see them compete, contest, and many more to come. And that they'll still have a voice in... Um, um, policy making, as in, you know, giving mm. their uh, thoughts, uh, channeling suggestions, recommendations. Hopefully this government will also be more open to hearing, um, uh, I guess, suggestions from outside as well. I'm really curious for each of the major political parties, who is going to be number two? I mean, who is really going to be their PM candidate for the future? Because That's right. now they're all like, oh, BFFs, but the next election, you're not really sure whether this BFF relationship will continue, right? So let's say at Pakatan Harapan, is it for certain it's going to be Rafizi Ramli in Amno, which is heading for their own G, uh, Who elections? Who will be president? Yes. Is it going to be Zahid Hamidi? Is it going to be Tokmat? And then even beyond Tokmat, who's there? Mm. Right? And that's, I'm sure, the case in Perikatan Perikatan National, National because it's so associated with Tansi Muhyiddin Yassin. Absolutely. Lots of um, who those second line of leadership will be. Can we just end on this point, though? Can we please acknowledge the fact that we are still polarised, um, different realities among Malaysians, yeah? So while, many, while there will be many who are happy with the current government and how that might take shape, there are also others who aren't. And I think we need to acknowledge that and we need to find ways in order to bridge that gap. What is creating that polarisation is, in my mind, and you know, we've seen this all around the world. We've talked about it in America, which took place long ago, even in Brazil. It's happening also in France with the recent elections. This polarization, I, 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 I'm now reflecting that it has been exacerbated quite a lot by our social media and digital 
platforms. And if you saw in the past 48 hours, so much worry, right, mm. over what happened at TikTok and why you're seeing these police blockades taking place. Well, James Chai, who was also part of the panel I had this morning on The Breakfast Grill, he says a lot of it has its roots in the economy, whether you're left out of the economic yeah. equation. So if you feel you're disenfranchised, you're not earning enough money, you don't have a chance to actually move up uh, social status or at least, you know, buy that home, buy that car, enjoy a better job, you feel frustrated. And that frustration mm. manifests itself, right? In, in race, religion, in other forms. Yeah, so... In identity. I think then Anwar's number one job is to probably get the economy going aside from healing this country and reducing that polarisation that we actually currently see. But Shawnee, you would love to interview Anwar Ibrahim, of right? Course of I course I would. Of course. The door is open to him anytime on BFM. All anytime. Right. If you're listening to this, Dato Sri Anwar... We'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> on that invitation, on that note, that is all the time we have this morning. Uh, for on WTF, you know, coming up next, we have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin. And then it's over to Enterprise. Uh, have a good weekend, everyone. BFM 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.